0: Hey, it's Manu here. Just a note before we start the show: we're all still working and recording from home, so in this episode you may hear some sounds of cars and trucks going by. Thanks for bearing with us. Keep trucking yourself and enjoy the show. This is the TED Radio Hour. and NPR. I'm Manoush Zamorodi, and today on the show, building
1: resilient relationships with Esther Perel. People want to feel alive in their relationships. And they want it in their friendships, they want it at work, they want it in their romantic relationships. It's essential. Esther is a couples and family therapist, an author,
0: a speaker. And the host of the podcast, Where Should We Begin and How Is Work? Over the past four decades, Esther has become one of the foremost experts on relationships. And with all the stress on families and partners and co-workers right now, we thought Esther was exactly the right person to talk
1: to. If I can help people with their relationships, Hopefully, I also can change their lives.
0: She investigates big questions like, what are the expectations in a relationship?
1: How do people create trust? How do they deal with conflict? How do they collaborate or compete? How do they build intimacy? How do they communicate with
0: each other? All of these things. And especially right now, relationships are being tested in all kinds of new
1: ways. That prolonged uncertainty that we are experiencing is accompanied with a sense of grief and loss, not because we lose people only, but because we have lost the
0: world that we knew. Crisis can push people apart, but it can also bring them together. That's how Esther's parents found each other.
1: I grew up in Antwerp, uh, in Belgium, in a community that was all... Jewish Holocaust survivors. Uh, My parents came from Poland to Belgium. Uh, They both were the sole survivors of their entire family. Um, They both spent years in concentration camps and Mm. then were five years illegal refugees in Belgium as well, before I am born. Um, And my parents would never have married if it wasn't for the war. Um, my mother came from an educated, aristocratic, Hasidic family. My father was basically illiterate. Um, they we did not belong to the same worlds. My parents are uh, circumstantial marriages like many post-war marriages. I've lost everything. You've lost everything. I'm alone. You're alone. Let's get married. But my dad adored my mother. He worshipped her. He admired her. And she loved being admired, (laughs) and so it worked very well. But their view was you need to want to stay together and you need to make compromises. I mean, as you
0: said, it sounds like a lot of survivors had real trauma in common. That's what brought them together. But did it also keep those relationships going, too?
1: A lot of survivors, after the war and after they had kind of ended the initial stage of rebuilding and locating themselves and creating a new lives and having children right away to prove that they're still human, would look at each other and say, we have nothing in common.
2: Hmm.
1: What am I doing here? But they would never divorce again because they couldn't bear the loss one more time. Right. The luck I had is that when my parents would look at each other, they actually shared a tremendous amount. They loved life. They had a joie de vivre, and they, let, they rejoiced in the things that the other one liked to do and went to do for themselves.
0: Esther's parents transformed their trauma into a partnership that celebrated life. Together, they became even more resilient. And right now, many of us are looking at our lives and wondering will this time destroy or strengthen our relationships? So today on the show, we're spending the hour with Esther Perel and her ideas about how we can all build long-lasting relationships in romance, our families, and even at work. So Esther, you've been a therapist for decades now. But back in 1986, that is when you actually shifted your whole focus to work with couples. Why did you decide to do that? Like, what was going on that you felt couples should be the thing you work on?
1: Yes, yes. Couples therapy became a field that flourished because the meaning of the couple inside the family really transformed. When marriage was a no-exit enterprise— then it didn't really matter if the couple did that well or not. Mm -hmm. I mean, it mattered a great deal, but it didn't matter for the survival of the family. People stayed together miserable if they had to. Once people could leave, the expectations and the demands from their intimate relationships completely changed. And I found that transition really fascinating. I also found couples therapy an endlessly fascinating practice and something that would take years to become good at and a science that was proliferating at the same time. And so I realized that it was an energy in a room with a couple. You could actually mm. see the change happening in front of you if you help people to connect or to open up or to to be vulnerable with each other or to speak true to each other or to apologize to each other. I thought, this is a full human theater. It's the best theater in the town. <laughs> and uh, I became very, very excited about doing couples' work. And then how that moved to sexuality was the same thing. I mean, it's also because the meaning of sexuality, the expectations around our sexual lives, the the shift from, you know, women's rights to women's pleasure, to to the democratization of contraception, of course. Um, All these things began to change the meaning of sex in relationships. You know, sexual satisfaction became linked with marital happiness.
0: So your first TED Talk was actually about this very topic, arguing that relationships and sex are not separate things. And in fact, sex is a key factor when it comes to building a resilient partnership. And so let's turn to your 2013 TED Talk, which is called The Secret to Desire in a Long-Term Relationship.
1: So why does good sex so often fade, even for couples who continue to love each other as much as ever? And why does good intimacy not guarantee good sex, contrary to popular belief? Or the next question would be, can we want what we already have? That's the million-dollar question, right? And why is the forbidden so erotic? What is it about transgression that makes desire so potent? And why does sex make babies and babies spell erotic disaster in couples? It's kind of the fatal erotic blow, isn't it? And when you love, how does it feel? And when you desire, how is it different? These are some of the questions that are at the center of my exploration on the nature of erotic desire and its concomitant dilemmas in modern love. So I travel the globe and what I'm noticing is that everywhere where romanticism has entered, there seems to be a crisis of desire. A crisis of desire as in owning the wanting. Desire as an expression of our individuality, of our free choice, of our preferences, of our identity. Desire that has become a central concept as part of modern love and individualistic societies. Oh, my goodness. Listening to that,
0: Esther, reminds me uh, of a conversation I had with a colleague a, a few years ago. And she, she told me that she and her husband were splitting. And I was like, oh, I had no idea that you guys were unhappy. And she said, oh, we're, we're not unhappy. I think we just could be each happier. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, oh, you're not leaving because you <laughs> they had a perfectly fine marriage, but they were kind of wanted to know what else was out there. Is that what you're referring to as this crisis of desire?
1: I would say that when I hear the statement of your friend, what stands out for me is that for most of history, marriage was a one time for life. Um, Then as we got the possibility of leaving and divorce became legalized, Often people left when they were really miserable. And today, we don't leave because we are unhappy necessarily, but we also leave because we think we could be happier. Mm. And that is how consumerism has entered modern (laughs) marriage. When I think about the crisis of desire, I think about it slightly differently. What attracted me to the subject of sexuality after working for almost 20 years in the cultural arena, I just felt like I'm ready to explore something new. And um, and I stumbled upon sexuality. It was absolutely not planned. Um, And I stumbled about it actually around the Clinton scandal.
0: Mm.
1: Because what interested me was how sexuality in every society, in every culture, becomes the place where the most archaic, traditional, rooted aspects of that culture are lodged. Or on the other end, where the most progressive, radical, transformative changes take place. Hmm. It is a window into a society through its beliefs, its attitudes, its behavior, its research or lack thereof, like here, around sexuality. Um, And then I began to notice one of the big changes in relationships, marriage or committed relationships, is that for most of history, sexuality was primarily a production enterprise. You wanted eight children so that they could work the land, And some of them were not surviving, so you needed many of them. And they were an economic asset. And it was a woman's marital duty. And nobody really asked if you liked it, if you wanted it, if it felt good, you basically did it. And it was the doing of it that mattered. And that changed then to a next model, which was belonging and romance um, inside marriage. Um, and marriage literally shifted from an economic enterprise to an affectionate, romantic enterprise. Mm. And then we went from the service economy to, in marriage to the identity economy in marriage, which is that you're going to help me become the best version of myself. So now, if you only have a few children, you need a motivation, a reason to stay sexually involved with the partner for years on end. And that's where desire becomes part of it. It's no longer what I should do, so it becomes what I want to do. And because it was part of premarital sex, which is quite common in the Western world before, desire has become the central organizing principle of modern sexuality. More than arousal, more than reproduction, more than anything. That's a lot of um, pleasure yeah, on,
0: a, yeah. on a relationship, Esther. I mean. Since
1: the 60s, people can do it. When they want, they have contraception in hand. So here is a generation with contraception in hand, premarital sex as a norm, the possibility of experiencing with each other what they want, and so often they don't feel like it and they don't know why. And that's when studying desire in long-term relationship became really like, what's happening? Why don't they want to now that they can? In just a minute, we'll hear
0: what Esther discovered when she investigated long-term intimacy and more on building resilient relationships, even when infidelity is involved. I'm Manoush Zamarodi and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. everyone. Just a quick thanks to our sponsor, 3M, supporting communities in the fight against COVID-19. Since the outbreak, 3M has responded with cash and product donations, including surgical masks, hand sanitizer, and respirators through local and global aid partners. In addition, 3M is on track to produce 2 billion respirators globally by the end of 2020. Learn how 3M is helping the world respond to COVID-19. Go to 3M.com. Slash COVID. 3M science applied to life. Thanks also to Epic Provisions, maker of Epic Bar beef was nature's idea the epic bar was their idea the new beef sea salt and pepper bars have three grams total carbs why it's in their nature after all they're made with hundred percent grass-fed beef and nature's macros three grams total carbs 11 grams of protein find them in the bar aisle or at epicbar.com I'm Lisa Hagan.
2: And I'm Chris Axel. We're the hosts of No Compromise, NPR's new podcast exploring one family's mission to reconstruct America using two powerful tools, guns and Facebook.
0: New episodes drop every Tuesday. Join us for the No Compromise podcast from NPR. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR, I'm Anoush Zamarodi. and today on the show, building resilient relationships with therapist Esther Perel. And before the break, Esther was explaining how the expectations
1: in modern marriage have changed. So we come to one person, and we basically are asking them to give us what once an entire village used to provide give me belonging, give me identity, give me continuity, but give me transcendence and mystery and awe, all in one. Give me comfort, give me edge, give me novelty, give me familiarity, give me predictability, give me surprise, and we think it's a given, and toys and lingerie are gonna save us with that. (laughs) So now we get to the existential reality of this story, right? Because I think in some way, The crisis of desire is often a crisis of the imagination. When I say that we cannot have one person give us what once an entire village used to provide, what I'm saying is that there is a kind of individualization in romantic love that I think is problematic. Mm. Look, at this moment, I'm not just even meeting a partner. We are meeting a soulmate. (laughs) A soulmate used to be God. You know, but at this moment, people are talking about ecstasy, transcendence, meaning, wholeness. You know, things that we used to look for in the realm of the divine that have now been transcended into romantic love. Mm. It was meant to be, it's almost a divine intervention. It fell from the heavens in front of me. And, you know, I think that the problem is with that model of one person for everything. What I will say is that. People need community and they need other friends. They need other people to talk to. They need other people to share activities that their partner isn't interested in. To ask one person to do all of that, to give me belonging, to give me meaning, to give me community, to give me transcendence, to give me and then all the other stuff of everyday life, succession, child, f- child children, family life, money, etc. That is. And clean out the dishwasher, Esther. Right. It's like that is. And, and, and everybody knows it. And I think Eli Finkel says it very nicely in his book. It's like, you know, the people who are able to get on the top of Mount Olympus have a fantastic view and their relationships are often much better than the relationships in history. But not everybody can climb to the top of Mount Olympus. And so it makes all the other people feel like there's something wrong with them because they don't have this kind of bliss that they talk, They have normal, everyday marital warfare rather than marital bliss.
0: Yeah, and I think that warfare can really be about anything, right? It can be work or family obligations, money, and infidelity, which is actually what your second TED Talk was about, the one you gave in 2015 called Rethinking Infidelity.
1: Why do we cheat? And why do happy people cheat? And is an affair always the end of a relationship? For the past 10 years, I have traveled the globe and worked extensively with hundreds of couples who have been shattered by infidelity. There is one simple act of transgression that can rob a couple from their relationship, their happiness, and their very identity, an affair. And yet, this extremely common act is so poorly understood. Adultery has existed since marriage was invented, and so, too, the taboo against it. In fact, infidelity has a tenacity that marriage can only envy, so much so that this is the only commandment that is repeated twice in the Bible. Once for doing it, and once just for thinking about it. So how do we reconcile what is universally forbidden, yet universally practiced? Because I find a soulmate. When you cheat on me, it hurts more than it has ever hurt in history. Mm -hmm because i come today with the expectation that is it isn't meant to be it's not meant to happen i didn't wait till i'm 34 you know after i've met so many other people and i found the one how can the one do that to me when people did not marry the one infidelity was deeply painful when people marry their soulmate infidelity is traumatic And it's a shattering of their identity and their entire world. And in that sense, it has become one of the more ultimate betrayals in relationships. People can do a lot of things in relationships and nobody says instantly, get out, leave, throw the dog on the curb, you know, get out. And yet there are many, many other painful relational betrayals in in couples. But this one today has become the queen of betrayals, because, mm. of, because love in, in, in its idealization is not meant to include this kind of rupture anymore. But you actually point out
0: in your talk that for some of the couples who come to see you, infidelity doesn't necessarily mean the end of their relationship.
1: The fact is the majority of couples who have experienced affairs stay together. But some of them will merely survive, and others will actually be able to turn a crisis into an opportunity. They'll be able to turn this into a generative experience. And I'm actually thinking even more so for the deceived partner, who will often say, you think I didn't want more, but I'm not the one who did it. But now that the affair is exposed, they too get to claim more, and they no longer have to uphold the status quo that may not have been working for them that well either. I've noticed that a lot of couples, in the immediate aftermath of an affair, because of this new disorder that may actually lead to a new order, will have depths of conversations with honesty and openness that they haven't had in decades. And partners who are sexually indifferent find themselves suddenly so lustfully voracious they don't know where it's coming from. Something about the fear of loss will rekindle desire and make way for an entirely new kind of truth. Yeah,
0: what are you thinking when you hear that? Because you now have the benefit of 2020 hindsight. And do you think that society is changing the way, I guess, are people being more empathetic and kinder and less, um, you know, making moral judgments about people. I, and I suppose that that depends on what generation you're from.
1: I think when I listen to it, I, I, first of all, I haven't heard it in, in quite a few years. Um, and I rem- what stands out for me, first of all, is the silence in the room. I remember <laughs> the silence in the room. People were transfixed. I felt slowly like I am talking the taboo, and then I felt you know, and I am in the United States, <laughs> um, and um, and I knew this this has never been said from a TED stage, any of this, and I just at one point I was there, I was swimming, and I had to continue swimming.
2: Mm.
1: and walk that fine line where I really wanted people on all sides of the experience to feel like I had addressed them with respect and dignity. Mm. And that fine line was so, so important for me. I've worked for 35 years as a clinician with couples. I've seen hundreds of people around this story. Mm. And I also understand that the people who come to me were looking for a certain approach that was not present enough. Mm. The other view is, is out there and is valid for some people. Many people, it is really the view that they're looking for. But there were a lot of people that were looking for some other way. They actually knew that they were not in bad relationships. They didn't really want to separate They wanted to find a way out of this that wasn't mired in shame and in secrecy and in silence. And that actually said to them, this is not the end of your relationship per se. And I was very pleased and moved that I could offer an alternative perspective to those who were looking for it. There is no one size fits all. So I think this
0: is a great moment to turn to another side of your work, which is podcasting. You let listeners hear a therapy session between you and real couples on your podcast, which is called, Where Should We Begin? So I guess, first of all,
1: why a podcast? So after the TED Talk, um, I, I I said to myself, These are things that I've often spoken about, but only at clinical conferences and only in professional environments. This was my first time I was putting this out to the general audience. Mm. And I thought, this is where it belongs. There's so few people that can make it to my office or any therapist's office. This is actually a conversation that needs to take place in the public space. And I want to shape influence, engage with the conversation on a global level about relationships today. Relationships are undergoing massive transformation um, on all levels, but especially couples have gone through an extreme makeover. There is no other relationship that has gone through so much change. And most couples have absolutely no idea what's happening in the neighbor's house, like you and your friend. You know, you're not living in the village where everybody hears what's going on next door. So your friend is divorcing and you think, oh, I thought everything was fine. You know, and I thought this office, I will preserve it. I will continue to do clinical work forever, as much as I can. But what happens here needs to be democratized. Mm. It needs to be made available and for free and all over the world. And to people who have no idea about this, and the the, the the taking it out of the stigma and the shame was a piece of it, but it really is was more, it will make it accessible. These are the conversations that people have at dinner table or when they sit with a friend. And I would like to, to let people know what happens to you is happening to other people too. A, you're not alone. B, when you listen deeply to the experiences of others you actually see yourself in your own mirror. Mm. So even if this is not your personal situation, in every episode you will find something that actually speaks to you. And and see, as you hear other people have those difficult conversations, maybe you'll have the courage to start your own and you'll get the vocabulary that you have needed.
0: Okay, so we have a clip from Where Should We Begin? This is an episode called The Chronic Philanderer uh, from the most recent season. And in this episode, you talk to a couple who is dealing with the husband's infidelity. Uh, For years, he's been talking to strangers uh, in online chat rooms. And now he's having an affair uh, with an old friend from high school, actually. So let's listen to a clip. It makes me feel diminished. Like it makes me feel replaceable. It makes me feel replaceable. Knowing, you know, one thing he would say to me at the beginning is that if I had met this woman before I met you, this is someone I could have seen myself live my life with. I was so shocked. I thought I was finally giving him the family
1: that he needed to complete himself. I know. I was giving him the stability. I was trying to be, you know, loving and calm and compassionate and a good mother and... I was trying to do all these things. I thought I was, like, really giving you everything that you wanted. You were. And it's like, but that, but that's where it was. Did you that hear? You he were. I was, but it wasn't enough. But that may not be because you're not enough. That's the catch here, is to not translate this as if if I was more, he wouldn't do this. Instead of, I was plenty. I know. And whatever he did is not a response to you. You have got to know that. I know. Okay? No matter how much you've given him, there's a piece of it he's going to have to do on his own. I know. Or
2: Or not. Or not. Or not. Can I I just say something to qualify the comment that I, this was someone I could live or see myself with a life with.
1: I think in some ways, as warped as it may sound, I felt that was... It's not a compliment to you, but it's the idea that it this wasn't just a, a, a floozy. This was someone of substance. The idea was...
2: it was may an I experience. you?
1: Yeah. I think the only... Or the most important thing at this moment, if you will say something to your wife, has to be about acknowledging how well, a thing it was to say and how hurtful it was. And not to justify yourself. Seriously.
2: I really wasn't trying to hurt her.
1: I don't care if you were trying, but when we do, you own it.
2: Yeah. I'm sorry. I
1: am. Yeah. And what makes it worse is you keep justifying it. When sometimes it's just, someone just wants to hear, I'm sorry. And that was wrong. Oof,
0: Esther. I mean, this clip. I don't know how other people feel about it, but for me, I, I am torn. Like, on the one hand, it feels very voyeuristic. And on the other hand, I feel very judgmental. I'm like, come on, man, get your crap together. And then I'm also really listening to how you handle him. And I'm thinking, like, well, what can I learn from
1: how Esther is talking to this guy? Interestingly, um, there's only uh, this is the only episode about infidelity in the whole season. Mm. But what people will have said and will say about this episode is Many people want to strangle him. (laughs) Um, And I think that, you know, that first of all, that is not my job. My job is to hold him responsible, accountable, um, hopefully have some ability to relate to another person's feeling and to the effect of his behaviors on his loved ones. And interestingly, when you reach the end of the session and you hear his you know, his challenges around his feelings about masculinity, about the fact that he could not have a genetic connection to his children, about the way that, you know, he became the way he is, not out of nothing. Um, He becomes humanized. You may not like him, but you begin to understand him. And that is the role of the therapist. The wife has to decide what she wants to do. Um, And... Nobody lives with the consequences of her decisions but her. Mm. So it's very easy to tell people, do this, do that. We are not in their seat. We help people gain clarity. We help people dare to do the things that they are afraid to do if that's what they say they want to do. But we also understand that this is a couple that um, has two decades together. Um, almost, that they have a a rich life, that they actually often get along quite well, and that for a couple like that, COVID may have actually been very good news.
2: Hmm.
1: Confinement, not COVID. (laughs) Right. Coming up, we'll
0: hear more from Esther on how she helps people navigate relationships in another area of life, at work. On the show today, building resilient relationships with Esther Perel, I'm Manoush Zamarodi, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Stay with us. This message comes from NPR sponsor Teladoc. TeleDoc is here for you with 24/7 access to board-certified doctors who can diagnose and treat non-emergency conditions like sinus infections, allergies, rashes, and more. And TeleDoc's doctors can, where authorized, call in a prescription to be filled at the pharmacy of your choice. Download the app today or visit teledoc.com/radiohour.
2: Some days, reading a bunch of headlines just isn't enough.
1: You need to let the news sink in. On Consider This, NPR's new daily news podcast, we can help you do that. Each day in about 10 minutes, you
2: can find out not just what happened, but why and what it means. Consider This, new episodes every weekday afternoon from NPR.
0: It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Anoush Zamarodi, and today on the show, therapist Esther Perel shares ideas on how we can all strengthen our relationships, whether that's in the context of dating,
1: marriage, family, and more recently, at work. When people go to work, you interview them about their official resume. What schools did they go to? What experience at work have they had? And nobody is asking you about your unofficial resume. Mm. And your unofficial resume is your relationship history. And that relationship history does not stop at the door when you go into the office. It travels with you. And it is going to influence how you work with your colleagues or with your father or with your co-founder, etc., few years ago, nobody would invite me to come to talk about relationships in the corporate or in the business context. Because Why? You were rela- too risque? No, no. Relationships was a soft skill. Relationship was soft skill. It wasn't part of the bottom line. And soft skills were often considered feminine skills hmm. and feminine skills were often idealized in principle and disregarded in reality. And as we moved in the, in the, in the workplace from production to service to identity economy, where people now expect from work the same as they expect from their romantic relationships, those are the two places where people look for meaning, community, belonging, hmm. continuity, all of those things. Now, suddenly relationships become the new bottom line hmm. Hmm. because no amount of free food or money compensation (laughs) benefits is going to compensate for a poisonous relationship. And then I began to think, you know, I would love to go and show how these relational dynamics that I have been exploring, they don't just take place with your partner, your romantic partner, they actually are part of your relational life.
0: And it's because of all those reasons that you started working on a new podcast, How's Work, right, where you record therapy sessions with co-workers or co-founders and help them navigate their relationships. Yeah. And I, I want to play a clip from an episode that's called Not Many Men Work With Their Moms, where you have a session with a mother and a son who've been running a real estate firm together. And. First, the mom ran the firm by herself 25 years before hiring her son when he was 22 years old. And now here they are. It's six years later. And the two of them are finding it hard to separate their relationship as mother and son and their relationship as
2: business partners. I'm 61 and I have a problem now. I don't know how I will go on and for how long I will go on. You have your whole life in front of you. I I don't. And I'm here because I cannot find my references anymore. Comes a moment when I want to say, maybe there's something else for me. I don't know where I stand anymore. This is my problem. And maybe that's why I'm so nervous sometimes. You know, sometimes I'm at the office. I see that he's uh, b- bad-tempered. I said, oh, maybe he's hungry. I'm going to the supermarket. the mama again. <laughs> and I do, I, I do like this. Are you okay? He stroke his face. <laughs> <laughs> so, where's the mom? Where's the boss? Difficult. Wow. <laughs> Some, and also when I tell you, don't tell the, the, the clients, my mom is busy, she will phone you back. Tell, Mrs. will phone you back. <laughs> All those things you have to adapt, mm-hmm. very difficult. But I have, I have a question, I have a question, and I have a question to you. Do you still need me? This I want to know. Do you still need me, honestly? Mm.
0: The, the way it has been the last five, six years, it has been um, a learning curve. And um, I still learn every day from you. But it's more of a way that I don't need you to hold my hand as much anymore. You can loosen it a little bit. Or I, I can let the hand go a little bit as well.
2: For my years to come, it's more knowing that you have my back, more then you hold my hands. There will come a moment where I will not be there anymore. You have... You, you will have to be alone. I'm thinking a lot about that. Mm-hmm. That's good to know. Do you know that?
0: Subconsciously, I do. Esther, listening to that conversation, I'm just so impressed that they are so open with each other. Do they? Do you find that the people who want to do these sessions with you are are they are ready to have the conversation, or is it hard work getting them to sort of get to where they need to go?
1: I would say the conversation is ready for them. They have no idea what they're going to do. <laughs> Um, I am very moved when I hear this passage myself. It's like, um, it's, it's the conversations that, you know, the majority of the world is family business. It's not corporations. <laughs> um, and uh, um, I know so many sons and fathers and sons and mothers or daughters and parents um, who would like to have a similar conversation. So, no, I don't think they come in because they're ready. They come in because they're they're stuck. They come in because they experience pain. They come in because they don't see a way out. And they say maybe a session with Esther could be helpful.
0: And, and this episode really is a good example of what you mentioned before, that as much as uh, therapy is about um, exploring intimacy and in relationships, it's very important to have context be part of The conversation. And of course, with this duo's conversation, the context is kind of messing with their heads. There's a a mother-son relationship that suddenly doubles as a professional partnership. Um, In other cases, I'm assuming you talk to people who go in business with a close friend. Um, What are some of the main challenges you see when relationships function or they have to function in multiple contexts?
1: So... Look, a lot of co-founders these days are friends who meet in college. And in the beginning, you know, there's another episode of two friends like that who started a company that became very successful, except they can't communicate with each other one bit. And one is literally on the way of kicking the other one out. And that is painful enough when it's between two people who work together, but when it's your friend and when you feel like you were the one who in the previous incarnation were the one who was protecting him and you were doing much more of the work and you were kind of letting them, you know, roll behind you and that you're not just going to lose your partner, but you're going to lose your friend and you're going to lose all the memories that were attached to this person that used to be so positive. Mm. I mean, how often do you sit at at a dinner and you meet someone who starts to tell you these horror stories of breakups, bad breakups and like in romantic relationships when people remarry you want to know what is the story of their previous relationship and their divorce well when you start a business with somebody you want to know or even a relationship with someone you work with you want to know what was their relationship with the people who had that position before mm. and I ask everybody how many of you in beer businesses have bad breakups and to what extent do those breakups and in what way do these breakups influence the way you start to work with the next person <laughs> and even who you hire? We t- often will tend to hire the person whose strengths match the weaknesses of the one before you. Um, I think work is a very rich ecology to explore. The overt and the covert, the, the the seen and the unseen relationship dynamics that people bring. We expect it more in our personal relationships, but it happens no less at work. It, it makes me think um,
0: also about how the pandemic has really changed, you know, for essential workers. They're still in the same context, obviously under a, a, enormous strain for their family. And then there are the other people who are working from home on that, what it feels like thousands of Zoom calls where I know for me, you know, I'm in the middle of a meeting and I'll have my daughter plop down on my lap. And it's it can be very disorienting, I think, for people that you're in one context and another context at the same time.
1: So I would say I don't think we are working from home, Manush. I think we are working with home. Mm I am with my family, my children for some of us, my partner for some of us, my parents, my siblings, my roommates. I am inhabiting all the roles at the same time. I am the parent, the teacher, the lover, the friend, the child of, the colleague, the boss, the CEO, you name it. And it's all happening often on the same chair in the kitchen. (laughs) I do not leave you know we are used to having a different attire and a different time and a different space for the multiple activities that we engage in when we go to work we get dressed a certain way we go to the exercise we change clothes we move we go from one place to another our activities are demarcated and delineated in time and in space and at this moment it is pretty much all a wash mm. I am homeschooling here and there's no summer programs I'm watching my, my children at the same time I'm trying to have a meeting I am pretty much dressed from the from the midline up (laughs) so we have all these disembodied experiences and people talk about exhaustion for a reason Um, because even the phone is much better you know where we actually are in synchronized time and not in a delay constantly Mm. And, um, and, and we're not trying to look at people with whom we actually never make eye contact so I think it's a very different reality for some of us um, we manage, we, are, we have a separate room, we can go. Some people even get dressed in the morning as if they were going to work and they try to really maintain the, the routines, the rituals and the boundaries, which are the three essential elements that create structure. But for many of us, it is way more chaotic and, and draining. And that's the reality at this moment of working, as we like to call from home or Zoom life.
0: It's funny. You know, the other thing that I've been thinking about is you talked about how work has changed and how it's become more part of our identity and community and this, this sense of belonging at work. It's not a job. It's it's who you are. And I wonder, you know, are, are, are you hearing from, I'll give an example, like Airbnb, a company that, you know, recruited people based on Identity. You're part of the team, the free snacks, the the parties. And then they had to let go of a a high percentage of their workforce. And you think, well, wait, I thought we were a family at work, and, and now
1: that's over. Yes. Work was not just what I do, but who I am. Yes. And when I lose my job, I lose a fundamental part of my identity. I thought I mattered because a younger generation has been raised with a deep sense that they are important and that they matter, and I can, I'm can, i totally dispensable. And nobody actually really feels responsible for making sure that I will have something to eat. I think what a pandemic does, for work and for personal, is it rearranges your priorities. Mm. It, it makes, you know, a pandemic is an accelerator. Every disaster is an accelerator of relationships. It's an, it's an accelerator because it brings mortality to the forefront or loss, loss of job as well. And at that moment, you basically say, what am I waiting for? I'm going to go do what's really important. So I actually think that there's going to be a burst of creativity as well. Where people are going to say, if I can't do the traditional route and I went and I studied something and I prepared myself or I worked very hard and I hoped I would climb the, the ladders and all of that. If the if the if the promise of the traditional system doesn't hold, then I can go and try something completely different. There is a rearranging of priorities and a reach for the essence that have, that accompanies situations of disaster. And I think that's what we are seeing as well. You know, people are having much deeper conversations with their colleagues mm. at work. People understand, you know, they, 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 they see homes. They've never seen where their, their colleagues live. Mm. They're in their living rooms. They're in their kitchens. They're in their bedrooms. Who is with you? Who are you taking care of? Who's your salary meant to feed? You know, there is a, actually a level of depth that is resurfacing, that I, that is very beautiful, you know. So, I think, in the relational sense, I would say that a, a, a pandemic, a disaster, often will highlight the cracks, and it will also highlight the light that shines through the
2: cracks.
0: Is that the same thing for you know? There there are predictions that divorce rates will be will rise. Do you yes. think that that's true
1: too? Yes, because when you say you know, what am I waiting for? It can mean life is short. Right. I don't want to wait. I want to be with you. Let's move in. Let's get together. Let's have children. Let's, you know, let's do the things that we've been wanting to do. But it can also say life is short. I've waited long enough (laughs) and I'm out of here. And I just, I don't want to compromise. I don't want to accept things that the brevity of life doesn't allow me to accept anymore. And so I have to ask therapist, how
0: are you doing through all of this?
1: I, I think I mirror what I describe in the world and often thought of my parents. Mm. Because thinking about prolonged uncertainty and living with a deep sense of unknown and when is this going to end is what they would talk about. They talked about it, but also people who were living in hiding during World War II who spent years, years in a ditch in a closet, mm. in a haystack, and you wonder, how do people do it? And the spirit is so strong that they are actually there to tell us, at least some of them. And so I really began to to listen to those stories, you know. What does it take to, to continue to wake up and to have hope and to give meaning to the hope and to give hope to the meaning, as Viktor Frankl used to say. And what is it? huh I mean in my case I think if I'm helpful if I can do somebody something for someone else I feel less helpless and then I have a reason to get up it's it's ultimately it's your relationships to other people I still want to see them one more time I want to hold them one more time um, I I don't want to let go of the meaningful relationships I have and the meaningful things I do. I think ultimately that's what gets everybody up.
0: That's therapist, author, and speaker Esther Perel. We are so grateful to her for spending the hour with us. Her podcasts are Where Should We Begin? and How's Work? And you can hear her two TED Talks at TED.com. Thank you so much for listening to our show this week with Esther Perel on Building Resilient Relationships. To see hundreds more TED Talks, check out TED.com or the TED app. Our TED Radio Productions staff at NPR includes Jeff Rogers, Sanaz Meshkin-Poor, Rachel Faulkner, Diba Motisham, James De Husi, J.C. Howard, Katie Monteleone, Maria Paz Gutierrez, Christina Kala, and Matthew Cloutier. Our theme music was written by Ramteen Arablui. Our partners at TED are Chris Anderson, Colin Helms, Anna Phelan, and Michelle Quint. I'm Anoush Zamarodi, and you've been listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR.